Good morning. How's everybody? <laughs> sure. Sure. Listen. <laughs> that was a really awkward, like four people were really excited. Five people were medium and the rest of you were like, this is my home church. He doesn't care if we clap. So good for you. Welcome to Kesed. My name is Danny. I am one of the pastors here and I'm going to share with you today. We're closing our Homeward series. It's been a series around this idea that uh, God calls us to pray in order to orient us towards kind of where he wants us to go. And that whole concept uh, sort of uh, landed us in some really good and heavy conversations around prayer and why prayer is, is kind of complicated and how it's supposed to be versus how we've been taught and all these other kind of things. So if you're brand new today or if you're just watching online and you have questions, a ton of questions about prayer, please go back in the series and watch those because they're all sort of building to today, which is the close of the Homeward series. Uh, but it's not the last time we're going to gather corporately during the series and pray. Next Sunday evening, we are going to gather right here uh, to have a prayer and worship night at six o'clock. I'll be here. And my hope is that we take some of the stuff we learned and that we show up and that we bring our whole selves and that we just spend some time praying and worshiping together. Now, I want to bring some clarity because I know we have folks who have never been a part of a prayer and worship night. No, you are not required to pray publicly out loud <laughs> or required to pray with somebody else. I've had people be like, wait a second, what, what, what's going on? Like, I wanna go, but you're not gonna like say, and now your turn to pray. Like, that's not, that's not gonna happen. So just chill out and, uh, and, and just come and sit. You can sit in the back and not talk to anybody or you can come down front. Uh, but I think it's just gonna be a really powerful experience. So consider coming to be a part of that. Now, this particular uh, talk that I'm going to give right now, we're going to call in Jesus' name, amen. That's how we're going to close the series because that's how most of us close our prayers. Now, I think a lot of us know that amen means uh, so be it. Basically, like, may everything that I pray be, you know, come true. May everything that I pray be of your will. So be it. That's what amen or amen uh, means. But the in Jesus' name part, I don't know if everybody understands the depth of, and the why behind that. Now, I understand that most of us understand that the cross and the introduction that Jesus made into the world is an invitation to be in relationship with him. And so, therefore, we pray in his name. But I don't know if we actually utilize it like we're supposed to. And that's what I want to talk about today. Good? Okay. So one of the roles that Jesus carries, this is what I was just talking about, is as a mediator between us and God the Father. This is why we generally, culturally pray in Jesus' name, amen. This comes from the Bible. It's a very biblical sound belief. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is basically the introduction to that, that Jesus is saying, if you want to talk to God, if you want to have a relationship with God, I am the way in which you do that. It goes on in 1 Timothy to say this, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. Now, I've said this a lot and I'm going to say it again. Kesed is a place for spiritually curious people. We have no problem sitting in the gray with you. We have no problem wrestling with the fact that you're a human and we're a hum we, we are humans and that this is a place organized and ran by humans. So therefore it is full of all kinds of flaws. But I will say that there are a few things, 
in the Bible that are incredibly clear. And one of those is that there was only one God in the person of God the Father, the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. That's what we believe is the Trinitarian God. One God and those three aspects of him and that there is no other. So if you continue to invite me to coffees because you love to be a part of a curious church and you love to sit in the gray, I don't know why I'm the pastor of all the atheists in Clark County that want to sit with me and be like, now I love this church and I love community, but like there's other options, right? Within the God part. And I'm like, oh no. And they're always like so surprised. They're like, well, I thought, I thought we were about curiosity. And I was like, oh, I'm totally curious about all the things that God the Father wants me to be curious about. And they're like, yeah, but there's other, there's like other ways. And there's like, I, I, th this impression is not meant to be a voice of someone that, I, I don't know why I got raspy and low. That was my like, dude, I don't believe in God. But it's just this idea though, I want to be clear that we are curious and sitting in the gray and sitting in the tension because we have so much foundation in who God is. Not because there is no foundation and we just get to make it up as we go. He is the mediator and he is the advocate and he is the one who intercedes for us. And so I hope that there is a deep seeking within anyone's story in here who's like, I don't know about this, that you start there, that you start with unlocking and looking at why that is. Romans 8 says Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is, look at it, interceding for us. Therefore, because Jesus is the mediator and the advocate, it is him that we as Christ followers call on for salvation. Romans 10 dives into that. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. This is where you should start. This is where you should lean into. This is where you should wrestle. And this is where you should ask big questions. But it is a never changing eternal truth that we have a living God that you were created right now where you are despite the season of life you're in. If you're young and hip and cool or if you're old and hip and cool. I love me some old people, so I'm not, you can still be cool and old, right? I, whatever you're at in your season, God still wants to use you. He still wants to move through you and he still wants to bless your life. So here's the question as we wrap this series up. Why in spite of all this knowledge, in spite of all this truth, in spite of all these teachings, is prayer still so hard? Why is it still so difficult to pray? I've talked to dozens and dozens of you Nobody has said this series made it easier for them to pray. Not one single person. People said it opened their heart. People said they understood more. People said, I, now I understand why I should pray or, or how my prayer works or what it means when my prayers don't work or what it means when my prayers don't get answered. Like, love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. Man, is it sure hard. And I was like, interesting. I wonder why that is. So glad that you asked. I believe a big part of why prayer is still today so hard for most of us is because of how the church has propped up its teachers, its preachers, and especially scripture. I believe, I believe that whether due to fear, lack of faith, or even just desire, 
prayer is hard, but I don't think it's as hard as we are making it. Let me explain. Last week, I read Psalm 88. Hopefully for some of you, it's now one of your favorite Psalms. It's a Psalm that ends in total angst without any uh, answers to any questions. It's just a person coming before God, blaming him for all of their problems and then disappearing. It doesn't wrap up beautifully whatsoever. And I appreciate it because it's honest, but it's, it's not my favorite Psalm. See, my favorite Psalm would be one of the other Psalms, one of the more well-known Psalms, one of the Psalms like Psalm 139. Psalm 139 is a beautiful, legit prayer. And pastors have been preaching it and teaching it and reading it for generations. People have memorized it and people have taught other people that this is how you're supposed to pray. So let's read it together. Psalm 139, perhaps the most beautiful prayer in the Bible. Starts off entitled, search me, O God, and know my heart. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such wonderful, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me is night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. And then he shifts into second gear. For you formed me in my inward parts. It's powerful stuff. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Whew. That is a powerful prayer. That is an example of the kinds of prayers that we've taught people they need to pray. And if you're a professional prayer, like me, then you should be able to rock that prayer pretty consistently at any moment or any time. I know that in any situation, when someone needs me to give them some encouragement, I'll turn to that Psalm or six or seven or eight other ones. This is what we've taught our church to do. And so it makes sense to me that people who are learning to pray or even people who just aren't gifted, like people who are professional prayers or unbelievable writers, would then think to themselves, well, I'll never pray like that. I'll never journal like that. So why even try? Prayer's really hard. Now I've said before that I think many times the church does a disservice to scripture because it doesn't share all of it. It oftentimes highlights only the parts that make God look shiny and not the parts that make us as humans 
want to use him to accomplish our goals. But this beautiful psalm, well, I don't know if you realize, but it has six more verses. No one ever reads the last six verses. No one ever does studies about the last six verses. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm kind of ashamed to admit I did an entire series one time and just left off the last six verses called Psalm 119. Some of it. The very last verse I read to you, the last two, were how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. That's verse 18. But then the human creeps in at verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. Amen. Oh, I hate people with complete hatred and I count them as my enemies. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. <laughs> Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. See, this is a very human psalm when you, when you read the whole thing. It's a very powerful psalm when you recognize that, that even this one ends with somebody coming before God because of something that was happening. And there's all kinds of lessons in how we should start our prayers by giving glory to God because by giving glory to God, we move ourselves closer to his will in our lives. This is all inside the series we just taught. But I think sometimes we forget that even people who write beautiful words and even people who pray beautiful prayers, in the end, they're still just people. They're not angels, they're not saints, they're not perfect, and their prayers are put forth in order to draw people in and to cause them to feel something more than they feel. But you are not called to pray like that. I am not called to pray like that. And I wonder if we've done a disservice by not reading all the scripture and all the stories and not really looking at Jesus, especially when he was here on earth and he was touchable, he was tangible and how people actually prayed to him. You see, Jesus himself invites us to pray in his name. It's not just something the church made up. He's asked us to come to God in his authority and by implication according to his will. Look at John 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. We are called to ask in the name of Jesus. I'll put this on the screen. And we are called to come to God because of who Christ is, what he did for us, and what he promised. And our eloquence has nothing to do with it. Nothing whatsoever. Perhaps that's why no one, not one single person approaches Jesus with this kind of eloquent prayer when he's actually physically standing in their presence. Ever. No one ever approaches Christ and says, oh God of creator of stars and earth. It'd be like a little poem that this little scroll they unroll. No one talks to Jesus like this when he's actually in their presence. No one hands him a letter. No one does any of this behavior when he's actually with them. Throughout the Gospels, people prayed to him simple, ugly, desperate prayers. They're, in fact, so ugly and so desperate, they don't even realize they're praying to him at all most of the time. It looks more like petitioning, begging, deal-making, or just crying out. 
I would have been a deal maker, by the way, back in the day. I would have negotiated my way in as far as I could. Because this is often how I am still working out who I am with God. But when he's present, it changes. There's at least seven distinct times when people prayed to Christ in person, treating him as a divine person and expecting an answer, meaning not just talking to him as a friend, but actually recognizing he was God on earth. And so they came before him in prayer. But as I said, none of them looked like these. Two of them really jump out at me, and that's what I want to highlight, because I think they, they symbolize perfectly how we're supposed to come to God through Jesus in prayer. The first one is very simple and very straightforward. I don't know who in the room this will connect with, but it will, for certain, recognize uh, yourself inside this passage. It says that Jesus is up on a mountain, and he's preaching all these beautiful words, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. People are blown away at who he is and what he came to do. There's tears. Babies don't even cry when Jesus preaches. That's extra biblical. We don't think that's true, but that's how awesome he was. Even infants were like, what? <laughs> you never thought about it, but those are the miracles you don't know about because crying babies is distracting as a teacher. And I'd like to think Jesus is like, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the, like, your baby's just silent. Little things, you don't know. It's another series we should do just called Little Things You Don't Know and just talk about all, all the extra biblical stuff in the Bible that could have been. This story is not extra biblical. It says Jesus accomplishes all this amazing stuff. People are blown away and he decides to head down the mountain. As he's heading down the mountain, someone who didn't feel clean enough to be on the mountain, who didn't feel included enough to be a part of the great movement of God was waiting for him. And this is what it says. Matthew 8, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. That's the whole prayer. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. So the first thing we recognize is this man decided that just because he didn't feel a part of the church movement, just because he didn't feel included in all the things that God was doing, he was still going to present himself before God nonetheless. He shows up and he kneels. He humbles himself. He's praying in real life, in public, out loud. And by the way, everybody can see his sin because in this culture to have leprosy meant that you were cursed of some sort. So he kneels before God on the trail, not up on the high place, in the low place, kneels before God and openly calls him Lord. He says, Lord, meaning you are God, you are powerful. You are the one that can change the way things are. Lord, if you will, make me clean. He recognizes right away that God has this power. He recognizes right away that Jesus can do it. He just doesn't know if Jesus wants to do it. He doesn't know if he's worthy enough. He doesn't know if his life that's like so far out of tune from everybody else's can be brought into any kind of symphony with the creator of the universe. But he knows that if he wants to, he can. And Jesus, instead of just speaking the words, it says he stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean and immediately his leprosy was cleansed. See, this story is a culmination of everything that just happened on the mountain, but the church has done a really amazing job of staying on the mountain. 
and we leave people that don't fit into our system or our eloquency or our ability to orate and we leave them out and we say, well, one day when you have less sin in your life or you can speak a little better or you can be a little more genuine or you can or you can or you can. And then Jesus, I think, still to this day, just leaves the mountain. He goes down into the low places where you and I are waiting. And he doesn't just walk up and mindlessly heal us. No, you still have to come forth and you still have to proclaim and you still have to humble and you still have to proclaim him, Lord. And then you still have to believe that if he wants to, he can restore your life in spite of your choices. And I just want you to know that still today, Jesus is still saying, I will. I want to, and I will be clean. I don't know who that's for, but it's for a few of you. You don't have to be the, uh, the lepros- leprosy person on the trail if you don't want to be, but you know if you are. <laughs> now, for the rest of us, I think there's a story that fits a little bit better with kind of folks who are just clipping along in life and knowing, like I said last week, that eventually something will happen that will rock your faith And hopefully this encourages you how to respond. It's in Mark chapter nine. We'll start in verse 14. Jesus is away and he's coming back. He left some disciples in the town to do his work. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd when they saw him were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Just little tiny, uh, little parenthetical. Uh, I wonder if sometimes we as the church, that's like, that's like our entire story wrapped up in those two and a half verses. If Jesus is away leaving us to do his work, and if right now as his spirit drives our community to do things, if he's kind of wondering like, what are you guys arguing about? I left you here to do my work, but you're too busy talking about this and that and how it doesn't fit or how it should be. I just wonder if we instead, like the rest of this passage, need to go before God in prayer and maybe less about our neighbors and the way they're falling away from you and more about our own hearts and the way that we don't deserve the love we need so desperately to receive. What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd, the dad, he answered, teacher, He's urgent. I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. He has a life crisis, something important, something valuable. He has a prayer that's not answered. So disappointment, despair, and everything between is in his words. Teacher, my child's sick, and the people you put in charge can't do anything about it. Now, I don't know what the people who were put in charge were saying, but if they're typical church people, they would have blamed it back on the man and said something really clever like, well, that's because you don't have enough faith, sir. I'm a disciple of the Christ. Who are you with the sick child? And he would have said, I'm nobody. But I heard that your Christ heals and that you were his family members. So why aren't you loving me and my child the same way? It goes on for Jesus decides to rebuke everybody in the crowd, even his own disciples. And he answered them, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? And then he just says this phrase that I appreciate so much, bring him to me. 
This is basically the strategy of all churches that should be across the whole world. We're gonna argue because we're humans. We're gonna mess the whole thing up. But at the end of the day, the entire strategy should just be clearing a path and bringing everybody to Jesus. Yeah, amen, you bet. That should be the entire strategy. Like what's your mission statement? Bring him to Jesus. How are you gonna get there? We're gonna bring him to Jesus. So where's the church gonna be in 25 years? Hopefully a little more brought to Jesus. Like, like that's it. A little less arguing, a little more brought to Jesus. This is the whole thing. Bring him to me. He says, you don't know, but I do. Maybe he was saying you should have waited for me. Maybe he says, we don't know. But we know that at the end of the day, he says, bring him to me. And it's a powerful, powerful place. And it's a powerful, powerful space that they are sitting How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed and the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. I love this prayer in between the two bookend prayers because this man actually prays three prayers. The first one is sort of this prayer of blaming. We brought him to the disciples and they could do nothing and we're here for help. Unlike the man who came out of the bushes with leprosy who just said, God, I know you can help. This man's not there. He's more like the rest of us. He's not at rock bottom, but he's about to get there. They couldn't help. Bring him to me. If you can help, Won't you have compassion and help? Still different than the man who came out with the leprosy who knew he could help and just didn't know if he would choose to. This man doesn't know if he can help. He's authentic, he's honest, he's grieving. He doesn't know. The disciples couldn't, so maybe you can either. But if you can, won't you? This is a very common human space for people to go with prayer. It's a very messy request. And then Jesus says this to him. And I think he did it with a whole bunch of eye contact. And he says, if you can, And the crowd went back, because that's what crowds do. (laughs) If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And listen to this father hit the bottom. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. He is at the bottom of who he is. And he is so raw and so exposed the disciples or the church let me down, his own traveling to the father let him down. And now he's sitting before Jesus and he's saying, Jesus, I believe, but he's being honest about the tension of his doubt. I believe, help my unbelief. This is probably the most Kessid-like prayer, community prayer that I can think of in the Bible for every person in this room, both believes that God can do it and doesn't. If you're really honest with your humanity. If you're really honest, when you're at the end of your rope, you are crying out to God who you feel like doesn't see you. You are crying out to the one who made you, feeling like he forgot you even existed. Lord, I believe, help me, save me, see me. Oh God, who has forgotten me and left me and lost me. I believe, help my unbelief. This is as ugly and messy a desperate prayer if I've ever heard. 
And Jesus responds. And when Jesus saw that, a crowd came running together. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Whose prayer? The disciples prayed plenty. The disciples have been casting out demons. That's like their thing. That's how they're becoming well-known. That's how they're moving the kingdom forward. Whose prayer? The Father's prayer. The prayer of, I believe, help my unbelief, was the prayer that drove Jesus to move in such a way because there is no space, there is no, 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 nothing in the middle between the Father and Christ. There is nothing but just pure human need. And that's when God shows up. That's the mess that Jesus is sitting in. Even today, when he's at the end of all of our prayers, we're like, God, I need this. And God, I need this. And by the way, stop feeling bad for making requests of God. It's his fault. He asks us to do it. Got a bunch of people being like, yeah, I'm just trying to make sure I don't ask God too much. Too much? Do you think your prayers could, like God's like, whoa, whoa, I said nine things, not 19. Chill, relax. There's other people in line. That's not how God works. You get to ask all of your prayers, and so do I. And the ones that work, you get to give God glory for. And the ones that don't work, you get to be frustrated with him. And guess what? Eventually still give God glory for it. But stop not asking. This is what he asks us to do. But at the end of that prayer, at the end of my prayers, when I say in Jesus' name, amen, what I'm saying is, Jesus, thanks for being in the mess with me. Thanks for being in the mess with me. Thanks for, thanks for translating this and, 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 and make, making sense of this and, and allowing my full human to show up because if I leave my human out the door and all I do is pray the first half of the psalm and I don't pray the second half of the psalm, then it feels like I'm just performing for you like I am everybody else. And so here's all my stuff. Here's all my garbage. Here's all my explicit word. You fill in the blank. Some of you just tuned into the sermon right now. I watched like nine people be like, okay, I'm here. I'm with you now. All right. I didn't know what he meant by stuff, but now I have a better idea of what I'm. (laughs) That's awesome. You just became a theologian. Good for you. We get to bring God all of our explicit stuff. We get to bring him everything. We get to bring him our out of tune lives. For we serve a God who touches the untouchable like the leper and heals the unhealable, like the boy, and meets us in the midst of our mess. And that is why we close our prayers in Jesus' name, amen, because they're supposed to be messy. They're supposed to be full, transparent, you at the end of yourself. And that's why that prayer matters. That phrase, that idea, that concept matters so much. It's not just because, well, he technically died on the cross and therefore he brings us before the kingdom. That's, that's all incredibly important and close-handed. I believe all that. But you and I are supposed to remember that Jesus sat in people's messes even when they didn't know how to ask for what they needed. I, I heard an illustration quite a few years ago now that, uh, that really stuck with me that I think 
has encouraged me in my prayer life and also just my walk around how God sees me and, and how I'm supposed to, uh, supposed to move with him. There's a story about a young German girl named Vera Brandis. And Vera was hoping to be the youngest concert promoter in Germany. She was 17. Vera loved jazz, and she heard that the improvisationalist jazz musician Keith Jarrett was going to be traveling through her, co- her country in a few months. And so she wrote letters and made phone calls, and lo and behold, you wouldn't even believe it, but he said, yeah, because I'm in the area, I'll play for you and whoever you can put together. Well, that was the wrong thing to say to Vera because she went to town. She actually ended up getting the Cologne Opera House booked for this, and 1,400 people were committed to show up. There was nothing like it that anybody had ever seen. She ordered the piano that he required and all the other things that were needed. And the night of the concert, it was very stormy. And so Keith was late getting there. He got there only four or five hours before instead of maybe the day before. And, and Vera meets with him and they're talking. And then he looks and he sees the piano. And his face doesn't seem encouraged. He walks over to the piano and he starts to to pluck at a few of the keys. He says, this entire piano is out of tune and I think parts of it are broken. The pedals don't really work at all and all the black keys are stuck and the keys that do work are very tinny. Only the upper registers seem to be close. And he said, I'm sorry, Vera, I can't play on this piano we're going to have to cancel the show. Vera was devastated. Keith could see that. And he said, listen, see if you can get the other piano here. We could always start late. I'm going to go wait in my car. Let me know. Vera's frantic. She does everything that she can do in order to uh, get another piano there. She can't do it. All she can get is a piano tuner who, by the time he's done, laughs at her and tells her, I couldn't get the pedals to work, none of the black keys. And basically, all I was able to tune was the third of the piano that actually functions. This is an unplayable piano. Can you imagine being Vera with 1,400 people now in the room, talking and excited and happy to go tell Keith that the piano he thought he would have, he wasn't going to have, and even the piano she did have, it, it couldn't be played. She decides not to do that. She decides to go up to Pete and tell, and tell, or Keith and tell him, I believe in you. This can be done. Won't you please? The story says it as Keith did, that he looked at her from inside his car, dripping wet out in the rain, begging him to come play the unplayable piano. And he said to her, never forget, only for you. And he walked with her into the building. About an hour later, with the house full, Keith Jarrett, walked up and sat down at the unplayable piano and the lights began to fade. The room went silent. Keith stretched out his hands after memorizing which of the keys worked and started to play.
piano was so quiet, he had to create the song with these huge repetitive riffs. At one point, even standing in order to create enough force and volume to reach the people in the back row. You can hear it if you listen close. to play improv on a third of a piano, skipping different keys and pedals that don't work for 66 minutes. This recording, which became known as the Cologne Concert, is the best-selling solo jazz album in history and eventually became the best-selling piano album the world has ever seen. You see, our lives are like these unplayable pianos. And we do the best we can to offer to God the things he wants. But at the end of the day, every time he shows up and we're praying to him, we know and he knows that what we thought we had, we don't have. That big pieces of us are missing or out of tune or stuck all together. And if we're not careful, we look around at this world and the people that rely on us and we think, listen, this is an unplayable life, an unusable life. Please, just, just move on. But if we're, if we're true to ourselves, to this book, to the spirit within us, then we, like Vera, stand before God in the rain-drenched decisions of our life. And we say, but won't you still use me? And every single time people are willing to do that, God says, yes, I will. Yes, I will. Never forget. Only for you. And our lives are able to make beautiful music. This is what it means to pray. For even the most broken instrument can make beautiful music in the hands of a master. Your life and mine. But you have to bring your whole drenched self to it. All the flat keys, all the broken pedals, the whole thing. And you have to be willing to wrap it all in the name of Jesus who makes beautiful music from people like you and people like me. And so my prayer is that you never pray the same that you never move the same, that you never walk the same, that you never, that you never see church or God's word or people the same, that you understand that God is constantly creating out of the cacophony of sound that is this world, small symphonies that are coming together over and over and over and over, first to bring him glory and second to make a sound the world has never seen, which is just beautiful living. We are called to live beautiful lives honest lives and true lives, but it's not going to happen unless we orient our lives homeward and are part of the music that God is building. I hope it changes your prayer life forever. I love and appreciate you all so much. Will you please stand as we close our prayer series in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this time, for the way that you're moving it, for the way that you are expressing yourself in our community. We lift every person's story up in this room right now. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you guys for coming. We'll see you next week.